0: Hi, I'm Nick Martinez, and I'm Julian Boney, and we are the host of Giving Space, where we explore the lives and careers of people of color and discuss issues facing our communities.
1: And our guest today is Dr. Jessica Ware, Associate Curator at the American Museum of Natural History. Welcome, Dr. Ware.
2: Thanks for having me. Nice to see you.
1: Nice to see you. Um, And so, many of our listeners might not know what entomology is um so what is entomology and what does an entomologist actually do
2: well so entomology is the study of insects and uh, there's a million of them that have been described, but there's millions and millions more left to be described. Um, and so we also kind of include people who study arachnids, although those are arachnologists, but technically we all are studying arthropods. So often entomologists and arachnologists are just kind of lumped together. Arachnids are things like spiders or tarantulas or scorpions or, or mites. Um, insects are not those. Uh, so there's 24 or depending on who you speak to, uh, different orders of insects and people kind of study across the gamut. And some of those insects are pest um, insects, things that actually impact humans, either by vectoring diseases of medical importance like malaria or dengue um, some of them are pests that because they consume crops that um you know we need to eat so that we can survive um, and some of them are pests of of economic things like like lumber like timber um you know wood uh pests like like uh, termites which are are considered to be cockroaches nowadays so as such entomology is a discipline that involves multiple types of biology. So some people are medical and veterinary entomologists, where they're focusing on preventing disease, you know, diseases that are vectored by insects, either diseases of animals or diseases of of humans. Um, Some people are kind of crop management or pest management entomologists, and they really focus on securing, you know, the world's food so that humans can survive. Um, And then there are other entomologists, which is the kind that I am, that really is focused more on I'm really focused more on ecology and evolution. So trying to understand the evolutionary history of insects. They've been around a really long time. Um, The first things to fly, uh, you know, they've been around 400 million years or so. And so I'm really interested in this kind of long uh, evolutionary trajectory that insects have taken. So uh, I would say there's to when you say someone is an entomologist, it could actually mean a lot of different things depending on the type of entomology that they're doing
1: and what's your what's your area of focus like what uh species do you focus on within your studies
2: well i mostly work on dragonflies and damselflies and termites and cockroaches um but i've worked across insects you know looking at the evolution of the overall kind of arrangements of different orders of insects using transcriptomics. Uh, But in my lab, it's mostly dragonflies and damselflies, termites and cockroaches. I have a graduate student that also works on Hemiptera, which are the true bugs. but I just, I guess I've always really liked dragonflies and damselflies, and I didn't always like termites, I'll tell you that right now, but <laughs> I've learned to like them and appreciate them because they're social, you know, they're social cockroaches. Um, and so those groups, there's more than enough work to kind of keep, it's a lifetime of work really <laughs> to study those those taxa. So
0: usually when people hear insects, they get the door running. And don't want anything to do with them. So for you, how, how did you know you want to be an entomologist?
2: Well, I was never really frightened of insects uh, as a kid. Um, but I didn't really think I wanted to be an entomologist. I didn't I didn't know okay. that was a thing. Like I didn't know that there was a thing called entomology. I didn't know there was a thing called being an entomologist. Um, and so when I went to university, I actually went to university for marine biology. And um, while I was there, I was taking invertebrate zoology because I was interested in marine invertebrates and freshwater invertebrates like sponges or starfish or whatever. Um, and then when you take those classes, you learn like actually there's more insects than there is anything else and there's more insects than there are sponges or starfish or whatever. Um, and so then I started taking entomology classes because I got really interested in them and then my first you know, non, um, I always worked, I worked a million jobs. I had every job you could imagine pumping gas at a gas station and the midnight ship, uh, you know, waitressing and retail and what have you. But my first you know, science job was in entomology. So I was hired as a work study student um in a in a museum, an entomology museum at UBC in, in Vancouver, which is where I went to university. Um, you know, and I was making labels and, and pinning beetles. Um, and then from that point onwards, I had uh, you know, that was it. I had like the the bug, I guess, for entomology, the insect love. And then uh, I decided to go to graduate school for entomology and I thought maybe I would do pest management because you know, securing the world's food, it seems like a lofty pursuit and like it would help and benefit the human condition and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and all of that's true. But when I went to university, when I went to graduate school for that, um, it turns out that you know what really got me interested and made me want to get up in the morning and like start doing work with systematics was evolution. And so then from you know from graduate school onwards, uh, I really focused on the evolutionary aspect of entomology. And
0: um, well, where where did your I guess interest for specifically dragonflies and damselflies uh, come into play? How did that evolve?
2: Well. Um, I mean, I guess I always thought they were really neat even as a kid I can remember thinking like like oh wow there's so many different colors and so many different kinds and I grew up in Canada and we lived, um, we spent a lot of our time with my grandparents because my mom was a single mom and she was raising us and um, uh, in the beginning on her own later on, my dad came to live with us, but it was just the three of us, you know, my twin and I spent a lot of our time with our Nana and granddad, and they lived up on a lake in Northern Ontario. And we were always like around the lake, you know, canoeing and fishing and swimming and stuff. And there were always, that's dragonfly habitat because females go to fresh water to lay their eggs. So we were around them a lot and I really appreciated them, but I assumed that because they were so attractive and like beautiful, that everything would be known about them. You know, uh, so when I went to university, I never would have thought that I could have studied dragonflies and damselflies because I assumed that there would be nothing left to be done. Right. No, no contribution that I could possibly make. Um, and then when I went to graduate school, um, Mike May uh, was a professor at Rutgers and he studied dragonflies and damselflies, and he said, Oh, what are you talking about? There's actually so much that we don't know. Uh of course there's like a million things that you could you could do a PhD thesis on for dragonflies and damselflies, and that really uh, that was good to hear. And then, he, of course, he was right. I mean, there's so much work left to be done uh, just on those 6,300 species. Uh, there's a lot of mystery still. So that's what kind of made me stay uh, on them.
1: You're also a curator um, in addition to... So what exactly does a curator do? What does the work look like? Because I feel like, you know, when I... Talk to young people who are interested in museum work. A lot of them want to to be a curator. So, what does that work actually look like?
2: I feel like it's 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 a really great job. In a lot of ways, it's similar to being a university professor, only without having undergraduates around. So, you you primarily are focused on research. Uh, so, on your day to day business, you know, you're working on research experiments or um, writing papers, writing grants. Um, That relate to the research questions that you want to pose. Um, But then you're also responsible for collections. So you're responsible for growing and maintaining the collections. Um, I'm responsible for the insects that are called non-holometabolous insects, which are insects that have incomplete metamorphosis. So people probably have heard of things like the very hungry caterpillar, where there's an egg, a, a caterpillar, and then a pupa, and then an adult. That's holometabolous that's a complete metamorphosis. Uh, And insects that are in holometabola, there's a lot of them, there's more of those types of insects than there is anything else. But I'm not responsible for those. I'm responsible for the collections of things where usually the juvenile stage just looks like a smaller version of the adult. So a small grasshopper, molts to a slightly larger grasshopper, molts to an adult grasshopper, and they all look pretty similar. Anyways, those are the, those are the insects I'm responsible for. So I need to make sure that um, I work with a museum specialist to arrange loans uh, that get sent around the world to scientists who are studying specific insects that they need to compare um, and contrast the morphology or the genetics of those insects. Um, and then I work to, like I said, to grow the collection um, and uh, maintain it. You know, for decades. You know, well, really, centuries, for centuries to come. Um, and I feel like when you think about curators. Often in TV and movies, um, they're always doing exhibits work. Like that's a real misconception. You know, uh, Ross from that TV show Friends, he was supposedly, you know, I think a curator, maybe I forget, but he was always like in the exhibits actually doing stuff in the diorama. And we don't actually do that. So you can collaborate with people in exhibits. Sometimes they will ask you for your advice about um, something that they're going to be putting in a display if they want to image things in the collection that might be related to an exhibit, but you don't actually do the exhibits. There's a whole department of people that focus just on that. Um, uh, and so I think that uh, if people would be surprised to learn, I think that curators are really just research scientists that, you know, spend 75 or 80% of your, your time just doing research, I would say. And you have graduate students and postdocs that you mentor as well.
1: And... I know AM H is sort of working on a new building and a new sort of wing to the museum that has some insect focus. Are you working on on some of that stuff? Or is that top secret?
2: <laughs> I don't know if it's top secret. I have been working a little bit with the folks that are organizing the insectarium. Um, I think it's going to, I'm so excited. I'm really, really excited for this new building. There's going to be some live insects and there's going to be a real focus on evolution, on insect evolution, which is my bag. <laughs> it's something I love the most. So um, I think people will get a chance to kind of uh, see what we know now about the evolutionary history of insects the true tree of life of insects and how we think um you know 400 million years what's happened in the last 400 million years among these insect groups uh, so that will be really fun i think
1: yeah i'm super excited for that i can't wait to to see it yeah, yeah.
2: the layout's going to be beautiful i think like from what i've seen of the plans of it it'll be like aesthetically and architecturally like very striking
0: <laughs> so i have a quick sidebar i was uh, that's running through my mind that I actually always wanted to know um, is that how how easy or how hard is it to like preserve an insect as you're like d- pinning it to the boards and everything is that hard or is that easy?
2: Well, it depends on the kind of insect, I guess, that you're collecting. So most of the things that I work on, which are dragonflies and damselflies, um, termites and cockroaches, for dragonflies and damselflies, we collect them in, collecting them in and of itself is hard because they're fast flyers um, and they're in the sky, right? Like they're flying around. So you're kind of jumping around to try and catch them. But if you catch them, we usually put them in a, in a paper envelope and then submerge them um, in fingernail polish remover and acetone um, because that actually preserves the color. Um, and so by the time they've been submerged um, for an overnight, uh, and you go to put them into a, a glassy envelope for pres- for like their permanent uh, preservation location, um, you know they're they're not really moving around. It's pretty easy to to do. Um, for termites, uh, we usually preserve them in ethanol. Uh, so similarly, we use an, we use an, uh, a device called an aspirator. So we suck them up into a tube and then we just submerge them into ethanol um, to preserve them. So it doesn't, it's not really, um, really labor intensive. By contrast, some other insects where you actually have to sure. kill them and then pin them, that actually can be challenging because you wanna do, people, where entomologists pin things a very particular way you have to pin them through the thorax you have to have you know a certain number of centimeters you know between the top part of the pin and the bottom part of the pin and you make a label and it's there's a very precise accurate way that that you're supposed to do it um, and some people are really good at it and some people are, are need to practice more and I probably need to practice more because I I work with things I just put in ethanol and then I put in acetone. Uh so I haven't really I mean I have ten things before of course but I mean I don't do that as often because those aren't really often the things I'm collecting so I'm rusty <laughs> <Gotcha>. probably. <laughs> so um, where
0: would you say your interest in science came from? Where did, where is the origins of your love for science?
2: Well, um, my nan always said that we had to go to university uh, that wasn't really there was no other option <laughs> available to us. We had to go for sure. Uh, we were going to be the first people to go really and to get you know degrees. Um, and so when I was in high school, uh, I was trying to figure out what type of thing I would want to do in university. And I thought biology was the course that I liked the most. I had a teacher, uh, Dr. Leslie Lang, who uh, was, you know, I guess, an engaging teacher you know uh, she uh, ended up leaving the profession though and becoming a dentist I found That's out good. after high school uh, so I felt like she was a professor that stayed a professor forever um, but she while she was a high school teacher she inspired me and I uh, ended up going uh, like I said I was wasn't sure what I wanted to do and one of my parents friends said well you're always swimming in the lake up you know in northern Ontario maybe you should be an oceanographer so I wrote that down oceanographer. And I looked it up and there were two universities that had oceanography in Canada, um, Dalhousie in Halifax and UBC in Vancouver. And I went to Vancouver for oceanography. And when I got there, I was embarrassed to find out as I was signing up for my classes that oceanography is actually like the study of waves and stuff. It's actually not biology. And somebody said to me, actually, what you want is marine biology. And here I am. I've, I've like flown to the other (laughs) side of the country for this thing. And and, this is the thing about being first gen, right? You don't have people to tell you these things until you're actually there. So then I was, oh, oh, okay. So I quickly rearranged everything to start taking marine biology uh, requirements. And um, like I said, then I went into into insects. So uh, I was interested in science, but I came at it from a very naive standpoint. Like I didn't have people who were scientists around me who were kind of telling me you could do this or that. I was just kind of feeling in the dark in some ways when I look at back in retrospect.
1: <laughs> and what was your your undergrad and graduate experiences
2: like? Well, I mean I really enjoyed my time at UBC. Uh definitely. Um but it it was a strange I mean it was a strange environment, right? Vancouver, uh there's not a lot of African American people there. Um and UBC uh, even fewer at the time, especially, um, and in zoology, which is what where my degree was in. I think I, I I remember being the only one that I ever saw in any of my classes. Um, sometimes there would be two hundred people in an vertebrate zoology class, and I was the only black person there. Um, so that part was a little bit lonely. I think um, I often wondered if I was like like supposed to be there or not. Like, was I not really supposed to be there? I don't know. Um, And also I didn't have the same financial resources that a lot of people had um, who are my peers because I was supporting myself through university. Um, And so at that part was a little bit lonely too because people were going on like experience abroad courses that they had to pay for and they got all this great experience and I felt very jealous and very envious that they we just had different experience. It was a different experience. Um, but like I said, you know, halfway through or so, uh, I started doing work study jobs and working in science uh, in research labs. And from that point onwards, I really started feeling like you had a sense of community, I think, because I was, you know, I had peers in the lab that I was working with that I saw every day. And I really started feeling a bit more like I belonged um, and like it was a pl- like it was something that I could do and that I could I could work in. And then when I went to graduate school, I moved to the States, Uh, my dad was American, so I had dual citizenship, and I moved to the States to come to Rutgers uh, to do my PhD and similarly I was the only black student in the program. Um, And there was some you know I experienced some pretty like not great things from some people in the department uh related to systemic racism and bias. And there were a lot of times when I was like, I don't think I could do this. I think I should, I think I gotta bounce. But I didn't. I stuck it out um, and really just tried to, you know, stubbornly just tried to outpublish um my detractors <laughs> and show them that I that I deserve to be there. Um and when I finished um and and got a job, that was really, you know, I really I felt a very it felt like it was a very significant moment in my life to the idea that I would be a teacher. i would never had a black teacher before. Mm-hmm. Um, just the fact that I was able to to make it to the other side and actually participate um, in some decision making, you know, for admissions and for recruitment and for changing what our departments and our really our discipline uh, to change it with the, dis- the diversity of the discipline is like was was really significant. I feel like it's it's
0: really important work. Uh, so you you briefly mentioned the, the the hardships you were facing as as you're coming into your career and um and as you know, STEM is a largely white and male space, and you touched upon how your color was uh, bring was being a hardship, but was also being a woman. In, in STEM field also hard for you.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um I think that uh you know one thing I noticed right away even as an undergrad was um that there's so much pervasive uh, systemic kind of sexism that really made it so that we weren't taken as seriously as some of our male peers, um, especially in, in the discipline of field biology, because as, as an evolutionary biologist, I'm constantly going to the field to collect specimens in rugged conditions. And there's this idea, I guess, a myth really, it's specious it, that you know women can't handle that, that we can't do it. Um, And so there was, I I can remember less so now, um, as I kind of have carved out my own space, but I can remember in the beginning, like agonizing over, you know, even simple things like what to wear, because if I wore a dress then someone wouldn't think that I could do field biology. So I can remember talking with my other female graduate students and we always wore like, it was like a costume of like to dress as manly as we possibly could for job interviews, to give talks at academic meetings because Otherwise, we would not be taken seriously. And even my first day as a graduate student, um, I actually started out in graduate school. Just that I was going to work in integrated pest management, but I switched and went into evolution and dragonflies. So the first advisor I had was in a pest management person. And he said on the very first day, just so you know, as a woman, you're going to have to choose between a family and a career. So you should start making those decisions now which is bonkers I mean it's yeah. just terrible to think that that's like the that's that's day one it's only going to get worse, probably from there and it did um. So I, I just feel like there's this um, there's a lot of uh, negative um I guess input that females uh, graduate students get that's really misinformation um, and so that coupled with you know, also systemic racism, it could really make you feel like, why am I doing this? It's actually is supposed to be fun. Uh, and this doesn't feel very fun. Um, but I do think that even just since then, I mean, that was in the early 2000s, even between now and then I feel like it's dramatic. Now when I go to an academic meeting, well, I routinely I don't wear a costume, I just wear whatever I want. And I feel like that already has changed dramatically. And what the way that women are kind of incorporated into decision making Um, positions also in scientific societies and what have you so I do think it's starting to we're starting to shift a little bit but it was um, I just remember (laughs) distinctly constantly having to feel that I had to prove that I deserved to be there because I was a black person sometimes I felt like I wasn't I didn't, people didn't think I deserved to be there. I had somehow just been given a free ride to get there. And then as a woman, I felt like people were thinking that I wouldn't be able to hack the difficulty of the program or the difficulty of the field work or what have you. Um, and I think that, um, I'm not the only one that felt that way and it was just a very different experience from some of what what my my peers went through when they were going through graduate school and I often wondered what must they do with the extra time <laughs> I'm not having to deal with this other nonsense what must they do with that extra time they must have so much extra time to do fun things
1: <laughs> so what what skills or or characteristics do you feel sort of helped you navigate that that situation and, and come out of it, you know, as successful as you are?
2: Um, well, that's a good question? I think, um, you know, I have a, I guess I'm, I'm an optimist and I really do try and see the, the good in things and try and find the bright side of things, but also maybe all scientists are kind of selected to be solutions oriented people. And so I think both of those things helped me because i really did try to even in kind of crummy situations like when i first started in graduate school the technician in my lab said that i should drop out because blacks and women were stealing all the grants and making it so that white guys like him couldn't get any work and i should drop out i could have really that could have that could have changed my trajectory
0: yeah but i
2: really tried to just focus on the positive things and really tried to um focus on and not let that sabotage what my goals were, right? Not let this person sabotage what my goals were. And then to in terms of solution-oriented goals, you know, I really tried to change the system and have worked, you know, since that time nonstop to really try and change the system in academia, in entomology in particular. Um, but I mean, that's not to say that there weren't times when I was totally defeated, when I didn't, you know, sit on the couch and cry, because I did that also. Uh, and I felt angry also. And I and I felt very, very frustrated and like things weren't fair also. Uh, but I was somehow, I think one skill, if, if you can find a way to turn those passionate feelings into productivity, um, uh, whether it's you know, working towards a community goal to better the human condition or actually working on papers or publications that are going to benefit your career, uh, that can be that can be really helpful because I worked like more hours than I probably should have to try and publish as much as I could to show this guy that he was wrong, um, to show my committee members that this guy was wrong and to show the department that this guy was wrong, he ended up not getting fired, he stayed, he was just let go a couple of years ago. um, A couple of years ago, like he stayed and continued to perpetuate this nonsense. So all of that hard work I put into it didn't actually it benefited me, I guess, because I ended up getting a job, but it didn't, didn't make them think, gee, Jessica did succeed. Maybe that guy was wrong. We should let him go. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what I was thinking at the time. I was like, maybe if I just show them that he was wrong, they would see that he was wrong. And then they would, you know, uh, but they didn't. So I don't know.
1: Do they, do they sort of look at you differently now? Like, have you spoken to, to some of those people um, who see your success now, if after they sort of, Made it difficult for you to to get to where you are.
2: Well, I mean, I think the people who were in the department at the time now w- would say, "Oh yeah, that was a crazy time." You know, they would say it like like as if it was something in the past. That really nothing could have been done, but it was just like watching, you know, a train a train crash or whatever. There's nothing you can do, right? When, of course, there probably were things that that people could have done, but they didn't. Um, and the person who who ended up being let go, you know, the last time I saw him, he actually was very nice to me because I, um, you know, I guess wasn't a threat to this person. You know, I mean, I don't know why he felt threatened as when I was a graduate student, but I think maybe he did at the time. And now I guess he didn't feel that way. So it was actually quite pleasant, um, but I still felt, you know, that it was—it's just so frustrating because there's so many people that want jobs in this business. That really deserve jobs in this business. That really want to do good uh, to change um, and better better entomology. So it just seems like there's no need to keep people around who are going to be destructive. It, when there's so many talented people that would be great additions to the field. Uh, that that give them that give them that spot. Give them that job. I would say.
0: Yeah. So what do you feel needs to change? within the science field to support more diversity and uh, be more inclusive for people of color and especially women?
2: Well, I think we need to, I mean, we need to to do a couple of different types of things. So one thing we really need to do is to change the way that mentoring happens, right? Because I think, the way that happens in science right now is, you know, you're a grad student, then you're a postdoc. And then like the day that you sign the contract to become a professor, you're a mentor, like you get no training on they're Like there's no training yeah. that happens in between then and, and, and you just suddenly being assigned to mentor a bunch of undergraduates and graduates. So we really need to train people on how to mentor, how to be effective mentors, and in particular, how to you know um, unlearn racial bias. You know, before we start recruiting a bunch of women and, and people of color to, to labs, if we haven't mm-hmm. trained the people who run those labs, who are the PIs, then it's not gonna retain people right. necessarily, right? If you recruit a bunch of people into a toxic environment, you're not gonna retain people. So I think we really need to do better at, at training. But then we also need to change the system a bit. So we need to change the way that we, um, you know, do admissions, the way that the metrics, the rubrics by which we judge people, um, they're really very biased towards people from the global north or from, from North America and Europe, um, and Australia. So, I mean, if I go somewhere because of the birth lottery, I happen to be born in this in this place where I can do genomics anytime I want, you know, there's like, I think 40 PCR machines, just in the little section that my graduate students and I work on, my colleagues in Guyana or in Jamaica, who would love to be able to do that for their their work, uh, don't have access to the same resources. But then when we go to apply for jobs, we're Mm -hmm. held with the same meter stick, right? We're we're held to the same, like, why did you only do a biodiversity study Mm -hmm. and this person did genomics? Well, because of the history of colonialism has made it so that I can easily do genomics and, and you and this other person can't. So we kind of need to change the way that we, I think, um are evaluating, you know, people's, you know, well, evaluating how limits to capacity, you know, cap- capacity building needs to happen, right? You need to build capacity of who can do you know, share the skills and share the training kind of broadly across the the globe. But then we need to acknowledge that because of the history of colonialism, some people have access to certain resources and others don't. And that is gonna lead to issues with equity. And so we need to kind of figure out better how to judge awards or how to judge grad student admissions or what have you uh, in a way that is gonna be more equitable and fair, I would say.
1: And um, thinking about where you are now, uh, would you have changed anything or done anything differently? Um,
2: mm.
1: Or are you like, this is perfect, you are where you want to be, and everything sort of went according to plan? <laughs>
2: um, that's a good question. I don't think I had a plan. I think, like I said, I was just feeling in the dark for most of this uh, for the last 44 years. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess, uh, if I was to do something different, the only thing I would probably wish I could have done better, which I still wish I could do now is maybe when I was going through graduate school or when I was going through undergrad, um, or even when I was, you know, starting out as a professor, um, I put a lot of pressure on myself, I think, to try because I didn't always feel like I belonged or like, I often felt like I was the only ones I put a lot of pressure to try and prove um, something. Uh, And sometimes that meant that it was unsustainable, the work level that I undertook, you know. Um, And I I think if I was to do it over again, I probably would say like, girl, just take Friday (laughs) off and do something like go do something fun. Like, why are you doing this? Uh, Don't stay up all night, you know, aligning this data set, because it'll be there tomorrow. You know, Um, I think that that, that's probably what I would have given. That's the advice I wish I could have given myself was just to kind of not feel like every single minute uh, I had to try and be proving something to somebody because the, the, that probably is crazy. It's not, not the healthiest way to think about it. And also, I don't know that that was actually as effective at making changes as some of the other things that I've done, like actually working to try and change the system Um, It seems to be actually be making more change than me just staying up all night to publish an extra paper. Like, I don't think that actually changes the system. (laughs) So I would say to chill out, it would be my advice to myself uh, if I was to to do it over.
0: So what does the future hold for Dr. Ware? Where do you see yourself in maybe five to 10 years?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I have teenagers Um, And so in five or 10 years, they will be at university and one will be finished university Um, and so that probably right, you know, for for me that probably will have dramatic uh, changes to the amount of field work I can do. Um, They they have come with me to the field before, um, but of course you know when you're in high school, you've got a lot of courses to take and classes and stuff. So it's not easy for me to be gone for long periods of time, or for them to be gone for long periods of time. And so um, I imagine I'll probably do longer, uh, more fun field expeditions uh, to, you know, grow and maintain the collections that I'm responsible for. And um, I'd like to imagine that in even in five or 10 years we've moved the needle a tiny bit in our scientific society in terms of diversity equity and inclusion um i think that we already so i with colleagues we started this group it's a collective called entomologists of color um we started last june and and the group really focuses on recruitment retention and activism to diversify entomology and just since we started you know we've recruited um over 300 uh, students to the field, students of color. And and I feel like if we keep up, you know, chipping away at inertia and kind of get the ball rolling so that departments, societies, scientific societies, you know, museums, institutions um, are kind of all working together for this collective goal, uh, we could see an entomology, we could see an evolutionary biology that actually reflected the demographics of the human population. And that's important to me because I think that, our science will just get stronger and better and more creative and more efficient. Um, and we're facing some pretty severe crises. Like we're on the precipice uh, with insect declines at you know higher numbers than what we think we've seen in human recordings uh, of these patterns. Um, you know we're going to need as many brilliant scientists to work on this as possible because, like I said, insects are responsible for for you know, pollinating the majority of the food that we consume, you know, for human survival, uh, we really need to get up, need to get on this. So I'm really hoping that we can, uh, have a really, you know, broad, um, diverse creative team that can tackle some of these issues that are really, really pressing kind of, kind of terrifying actually questions that we have to kind of try and find answers to quickly.
1: So you, there were two things that you mentioned, um, just now that I wanted to, to, so um, when you're you're talking about the importance and the role of insects biologically um, what what should people know about insects that and their role in on this planet that you feel like is often missed?
2: Well I think humans in general tend to ignore life around them. And we really focus on just the other humans that are around. But you know, I think there's something like ten quintillion insects. You know, ten followed by eighteen zeros. There's a lot of insects on the planet at any given time. And um, you know, any action that humans take actually impacts you know species, communities, um, you know, networks of of taxa. Um, the decisions that we make. Uh, whether it's something simple like what we plant in our garden or how many times we drive to the grocer those actually have dramatic impacts on you know downstream on on potentially hundreds of thousands of of living things um and people i think don't don't think about it that way because if you think about your decisions actually having an impact then it's a lot of work and i guess people don't like to have to think before they do everything they just want to act spontaneously um but the, our desire to have a perfectly green lawn, our desire to be able to drive as often or fly as often whenever we want is probably gonna result in human downfall, right? Like if insects really were to go, uh, if specific insects um, were to go extinct, it would actually have catastrophic um, ripples kind of across the ecosystem, across the food chain, and certainly it would affect us. So. Um, I think we should, we, we it would, we would be wise to keep in mind that every action we take actually has a pretty big impact on these um, million species. Uh, like I said, there's millions more left to be described uh, that are on the planet, so.
1: And what's the, and you mentioned field work. Um, so what's the coolest place you've gone to for, for field work?
2: Well, I mean, I feel so fortunate because I've been able to go to all of the continents, except for Antarctica, and they're all really very different. So, I mean, I we there are, in, there are insects in the Arctic, so I spent some time in the Arctic, like as far north as you can go, north of the Arctic Circle, uh, and it was wild. because We had to sleep in, you know, two sleeping bags with a hat and mittens on, and there were reindeer everywhere, and... Uh, it was really cool to catch dragonflies in that habitat but I mean I've also we spent a lot of time in South America and Guyana um a lot of time moving to Australia or Namibia South Africa is another place I really I mean because there's zebras and all sorts of things uh that you get to see uh on your journey I guess as you're doing your field work um each each loc- each biome I guess is is my favorite when I'm there I'm like oh this is my favorite I, I only ever want to collect here. And then I go to the tender and I'm, oh no, the tender is my favorite. Oh no, actually the rainforest is my favorite. Uh, because each one is so unique. Um and yeah, so I think they're all my they're all my favorite in different ways. I don't like, I mean, there are some places that make me feel like a little bit more on edge sometimes, I guess, because some places have really venomous, particularly venomous snakes or particularly venomous scorpions. Um and so they're while they're it's always enjoyable, because there's usually a lot of insects there, I'm like on edge, because I don't want to, those are, I don't know why, I guess everyone has something that makes them feel a little bit uneasy. And sometimes, you know, scorpions are that for me. (laughs) Don't, they're not my favorite of all of the arachnids that are out there. Um, So in that way, maybe the Arctic is why I love the Arctic, is because there's no scorpions there. (laughs) But um, I don't know, they're all, all all the biota uh, in these locations are, Neat in their own way, I guess. <laughs> so, we've done a lot of cool things. So we've, I mean, we've we've had the chance to collect uh, for extended periods of time and try, you know, different things out, you know, different ways to collect dragonflies. And um, I think that's just it's just fun when you're in the field. You can just try stuff. You know, you're on a different clock because uh, you're there for three weeks or something like that. And so. You want to spend the day trying to set up a net to catch dragonflies, you know, across the river, do it. Or we we put like these blacklight traps that you're supposed to secure on a ground, you know, on the ground. Uh, We actually put them on on canoes and and like canoes through this area at night. Um, to try and catch things in Guyana one time. Like we, I don't know, those things are just fun. You just try things that are new. Uh, We saw lots of river crocodiles and and bats and it's just really, there's lots of fun things one can do in the field, I would say.
0: Do you have any advice for our listeners uh, navigating the STEM field and how to, you know, navigate what they want to do or the hardship that you may have, you know, encountered? and how to surpass them?
2: Well, I would say, I mean, one piece of advice might be to not be afraid to make mistakes. So, I mean, I make mistakes all the time now and I've made them throughout my whole life. <laughs> I feel like in some ways uh, that's what the that's the red thread that ties everything together. Like flying to Vancouver to do oceanography and realizing that it's actually marine biology. You know, um, deciding I want to do, <clears throat> excuse me, integrated pest management, but then realizing that I didn't actually want to do that. after I'd already moved to the States for grad school. Um, So I think, you know, part of science is trying things out and seeing what you like. And you might decide that after three years of doing cellular and molecular neuroscience that you want to study, you know, river restoration, freshwater, Mm -hmm. do it, you know, like just, I would say keep trying things because I think we're told from an early age, you have to pick something and kind of stick with it. But I actually think that in science, you can you don't have to. And a lot of the skills are kind of transferable. So you could start out doing one thing and build a skill set, but actually use it for something different. So I just wouldn't be afraid to take risks and make mistakes and try things out along the way is what I would say.
1: Well, thank you, Jessica, for joining us on this episode of Giving Space Podcast. It's been a pleasure having you and, and talking with you. Um, I've learned a lot about what it means to be an entomologist. Like I see all of the entomology crew at, at AMNH, um, and they're all very different. Like different, <laughs> different. Um, but I feel like most people haven't met an entomologist or sort of know what they do. Um, and so I think that this will will give people a lot of insight into something new.
2: Well, hopefully uh, everyone gives up their hopes and dreams and becomes an entomologist (laughs) during this podcast because we need more entomologists out there. So (laughs)
1: We'll do our best. We'll make sure that we we get the word out there that entomology is is the place to be.
2: It's what the cool kids are doing. It's what the young hip people are into.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Nick Martinez. And I'm Julian Boney. And we'll see you next time on Giving Space.